Good morning. Good morning. The scripture this morning is from the first and second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. It's written on page six in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebuilding against, rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. A few months ago when we started planning this special Labor Day service, was pondering who we might invite as a guest speaker, uh, someone who has reflected deeply on the topic of faith and its relationship to our daily work. And uh, someone immediately came to mind, uh, a dear brother who is today our guest speaker, that's Pastor Scott Seaton, uh, the senior pastor of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, who's here together with Chris and family, and so grateful that you could join us here today. Uh, Emmanuel was a church that was started in Arlington, just down the street, um, a few years before us, and uh, which made Scott not only a friend, but also a mentor in a lot of ways, just such a joy and a, a blessing to be able to bounce ideas off of each other and to learn from things that Scott had done. And so it, it's, it's uh, no just mere gesture to say uh, that a lot of what we have become and a lot that we have done um, was shaped by the wisdom that Scott 
granted me his advice and direction, which also means if there's anything wrong with the church, then you can talk to him afterwards, too. Um, no, we'll blame him. Uh, but so grateful to be able to share this day uh, together um, and to have this brother's wisdom, gifts, and faith uh, together with his family uh, poured out upon us by God's Spirit. And so let's together welcome Scott Seaton uh, together with applause. morning. It is really great to be here, um, and I think many of you know who know me, and I've known some of you well, and some of you from afar, and as we uh, work and serve and minister uh, way down uh, across the river in Virginia, uh, that I, I love this church, I really do, uh, and I, I, I assure you that I have learned more from Duke and his passion and his heart for the work of ministry and how the gospel affects all of life uh, than any one or two slight tiny little nuggets and certainly a lot of blame uh, that I could have ever shared with him. Uh, and so I'm, I'm grateful for you and, and for this church uh, that you are engaged in the, in the good work of the gospel, that you believe that the gospel is here not uh, given to us uh, to not only restore our soul but also communities. And that the whole of life is to be centered around the gospel. And it really has a way of, of shaping everything and infecting everything. Uh, that you are engaged in the hard and often thankless work of reconciliation and restoration. I also want to just thank you personally for giving Duke and Paula that gift of a sabbatical. Uh, not a lot of churches do that. And it's a good and very helpful thing. And you'll hear, I'm sure, just continually anecdotes and ways that the sabbatical has helped shape uh, and renew and restore Duke and his ministry and marriage. And I just ask one favor of you guys to, to not ask him to quantify or to sort of uh, count up or have some sort of algorithm for this much sabbatical equals this much, much fruitfulness in ministry. It just doesn't work that way, as you know. Uh, and it just, the things that he learned and was shaped by, I know just will deeply work into his heart and into your lives as well. Uh, my wife and I just returned late last night uh, from our own little mini sabbatical of one week. Uh, it's, this past week, this past month has been a time of uh, major transition for me and my wife. We uh, just uh, finished uh, taking our two youngest kids to college. They're at the same place, but now they're away from our house. Our oldest one is still here and working in D.C., and uh, so we aren't quite empty nesters, but we see it from here. And uh, so that's a major transition for us. We also just, in August, finished up uh, two years of fostering two kids, uh, eight and now two and a half, uh, and that's been tiring, it's been hard in a lot of ways. It's been good. Uh, we've also been married 25 years, and so, uh, but it, with all the fostering that's been going on, we really didn't have a chance to be able to celebrate and to mark that time. And so my wife and I uh, took a, a week off to be able to rest and to celebrate. And so what we, we, uh, what we did is we went to one of those all-inclusive Caribbean resorts where you don't have to think about anything except whether you go to the beach or to the pool that day. Uh, and uh, where waiters come to your lounge chair with uh, drinks with umbrellas in them. Um, I got kind of used to that. <laughs> so you'll forgive me if uh, in the middle of the sermon I ask one of you to run out and get me a cup of coffee or <laughs> some fruit drink with your choice of whatever goes in it. So 
Um, and at the beach, I read a great book, a great book. It's called A Gentleman in Moscow. And I literally, and I don't do this often, but I literally teared up when I read the final sentence. And I had, some of you I'm sure have read it, uh, I, I just miss the delightful characters and the thoughtful uh, phrasing, the paragraphs that I would read and then just go back and reread because of the way that the author phrased uh, the, the writing there. And I think it's a classic already. In the way that Italian author, novelist, uh, Italo Calvino defines that word classic. A classic is a book that has never finished saying what it has to say. And I certainly believe that describes one of his works. I don't, I'm sure, um, I, I wasn't terribly familiar with, I wasn't familiar with at all, actually, with Italo Calvino until several years ago when someone mentioned his book called Invisible Cities. And it was something I read years ago and I, I continued to think about and I'll go back and reread portions of it. And it's a fictional account of interactions of the uh, Kublai Khan and Marco Polo. And the Khan's empire is just incredibly vast, too vast for any one man to see it all. And so it's impossible to see it. And so therefore his cities of the empire are invisible to him. And so he asked Polo to describe the various places that he's traveled to. And Polo does that in uh, 55 brief vignettes of different cities. And Polo says this, that you take delight not in a city's seven or 70 wonders, but in the answer it gives to a question of yours. An early account is that of Despina, there. which can be reached, he says, in two ways, by ship or by camel. The city displays one face to the traveler arriving over land, and a different one to him arrives by sea. And the camel driver approaches the city by, uh, from the land, and he sees the towers, and he sees the chimneys, and he imagines a ship. Now, he knows it's a city, of course, but it reminds him of a windjammer, a, a large sailing vessel about to set off to exotic ports where adventures await. And for him, that answers a question that he has. Or the sailor sees the city through the haze, and he thinks of two humps of a camel. He knows it's a city, but he imagines himself at the head of a caravan setting off to oases far away. One city, two perspectives, depending on where you're coming from. Well, how do you approach this city? How does it answer the questions that you have? Like the camel driver or the sailor, your perspective is largely shaped by what brings you here. And for many of you, that's your vocation or your aspiration for a particular job. And you feel very different about the city because of what you bring to it and how you approach it. So maybe you are an idealist. And the job that you have in the city that you work in is a fulfillment of all your dreams and hopes, or you want it to be, where you can realize your deepest longings for success and for opportunity and influence. I met a, a Nepalese immigrant, and I asked him why he moved to D.C., and he said, I moved here because you rule the world from here. Now, that's not true, but those are the words of an idealist. Or maybe you're a pragmatist, and for you, the city is just a place to work, a place to put bread on the table, and maybe you were once an idealist, but now you've become a little more cynical, and, and now you simply just consume what the city has to offer and your job has to offer, and now you're a pragmatist. How do you approach the city? Same city, two perspectives. 
And the Bible offers various perspectives at work. For example, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we learn that work is not a result of the fall, it's not a result of the curse, but it's something good that God created for his image bearers. And then in the New Testament book of Colossians, we learn that we are to work unto the Lord and not just a fallible boss. Work itself has dignity. It's a God-given gift to express our creator who works and creates. And today I want to look at, the, at work from the Bible, which is a book more than any other classic, has not finished saying what it has to say to you and to me and to a needy world. Right? I want to look at a story that we just read of one man and his vocation and it helps, how it helps us us today to be able to city to see the city that we live in and what we do here in it in the way that God sees it. So how does God approach the city? Well, like Calvino's book, I think the Bible offers many different perspectives, and we're going to look at three. The first perspective is the first vignette, is a city in trouble. And this is a picture from an article in The Guardian on the city of Palermo in Italy. Uh, in the aftermath of a 1992 car bomb when the Sicilian Mafia killed an anti-Mafia judge. And the story of Nehemiah takes place about 100 years after the exile when the Babylonians invaded Judah and they took their best and their brightest into exile. But in 539 BC, the Persians conquered Babylon and so they were the new rulers in town. And the next year, King Cyrus permitted all the uh, aliens and strangers the, the right of return. They could go back home and that included uh, the Jews. And so uh, they were able to return, but only a few had because Persia was all they knew. And what was more than that, Jerusalem was in trouble, like Palermo. It was a city in trouble. And that went on for decades until about 450 B.C. and the story of Nehemiah that we just read. When Nehemiah was in Susa, which is one of the Persian capitals in the western part of modern Iran, visitors from Judah arrive and Nehemiah inquires about Jerusalem and, and how the people are doing there. And you see the answer in verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Now, in the Hebrew, the words trouble and shame rhyme. It's ra and kepha, and the word great modifies both. And so it's great trouble, which is a physical danger, but then shame, which is a more of an emotional a way you feel about yourself and the place that you're in. You're dishonored and you're downcast. And why are they experiencing great trouble and shame? Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, the word Jerusalem, the city, literally means city of shalom, a city of peace. And peace is not simply an absence of hostilities, but it's the positive presence of wholeness, of integration, of flourishing. God delights in human flourishing when all the parts work together and there's an integrated whole. He cares about the whole person, too. He cares about your spiritual and your physical and your social, your relational health. But instead of Jerusalem being a city of shalom, it's a lie. It's a city of great trouble and shame. Why is that? Well, consider how the walls of a city, walls and gates, contributed to a city's well-being. First of all, they were a source of strength, right? They kept the enemies out. 
And the walls and the, uh, the gates help create a safe environment within for prosperity, for a, a community to grow and to flourish. Not just economic welfare, but social and spiritual and educational development. Right? They could do that because they were safe. They weren't going to be plundered. Uh, broken walls and burned gates meant there was no stability. You couldn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. and You couldn't really build for the future. And they were in great trouble because their enemies could come and go as they pleased. It was also a source of pride. The walls were landmarks, which were part of the city's uh, identity. They were prominent features that defined how you felt about your city. And when you walked by them and they looked strong, you felt strong. You felt good. But when they lay in rubble, you felt great shame. And the broken walls of Jerusalem meant that the people's strength and their identity suffered. Their strength and their identity suffered. It's a city of trouble and shame. Nehemiah's response in verse 4. First thing he did. Not what a lot of us would do in this city. We start getting out our planners and, and books and research and study. Instead, verse 4, he wept and he mourned for days. So the news wasn't just head knowledge and awareness of the problems. He felt trouble and shame in his gut. He was grieved. He was moved by it. He so empathized hundreds of miles away with the plight of the people in Jerusalem that he was personally moved with compassion. And now we don't have physical walls around the city today, right? But D.C. has other features that provide the same strength and identity. The strength and identity, right? Neighborhoods, government, businesses, Schools, families, arts, infrastructure. And all those parts are like sections of a wall that when they're together, when they're whole, they make up a whole uh, a sense of identity and strength, right? Uh, not just visually, but emotionally. If your city's economy, uh, the educational system, and your cultural offerings are strong, you feel good, you feel whole, you feel together. Right? But when they're weak, when you don't have a job, when your schools are marginalized, when your neighborhoods aren't safe or your baseball team miss, misses the playoffs, you feel shame. Each one of your vocations is like a section of that wall. It's a section of that wall, something that contributes to the city's strength and its identity. And you don't have to look hard to see that the sections of our city's wall have cracks in it, and it's broken in part. It's broken in parts, and like Nehemiah, it should make you weep and mourn. City's most known, and you and I all know that it's not just a city of politics, uh, but uh, but clearly politics are broken in this city, where government leaders will will sow fe- uh, seeds of fear and division, and parts of the church will saddle right up to that. It makes me weep and it makes me mourn. Our education, there are significant achievement gaps between the wealthy and low-income students. It should make you weep and mourn. In business, there's a significant pay gap, including in this city, where women earn about 15% less than their male counterparts. It should make you weep and mourn. Real estate, lack of affordable housing, 
and gentrification. How does D.C. not become an elitist city as more and more people move into the city and drive prices up such that policemen and teachers and librarians and immigrants can't afford to live here? That should make you weep and mourn. Or families. Over 40% of the region's children have suffered a major traumatic event, like the death or the incarceration of a parent. They personally witness violence. They're living with someone who's addicted. It should make you weep and mourn. Parts of this city are broken. It's a city in parts in trouble. And where do you feel trouble and shame? Where do you feel that in your gut, right? What needs in your vocation repair? And how can you repair your section of the wall? Well, let's look at the second vignette, which is a city under repair. And these are the streets of Palermo uh, after the mayor there in the picture helped lead a campaign to rid the city of the mafia violence and the corruption that so infested the city. And now the, the streets of the city are safe to walk on and their human flourishing has returned to the streets of Palermo. So in our story, for four months, Nehemiah confesses his own sin, the corporate sin of his people, and he prays for guidance and he develops a plan. And in verse 11, he asks God to grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And we don't quite yet know who this man is, but we learn that in verse 12. We learn that he's a cupbearer, Nehemiah is, to King Artaxerxes, who's the successor of Cyrus. And Nehemiah is praying that God would work through his job. As a cupbearer, he ensured that the wine was safe to drink and uh, even sipping into the presence of the king to prove that it's safe. And so his loyalty and his constant presence uh, around the king made him a trusted advisor on other uh, matters as well and gave him constant access to him. And when he's prompted by the king, Nehemiah requests permission to go to Jerusalem, verse 5 of chapter 2. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And he lays out a general plan. He hasn't been there yet, so he just lays it out in, in uh, broad strokes. The resources that he would need and how long he would be gone. In the verse 11, he went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And during those three days, he didn't announce his attentions to anybody until he first got a chance to inspect the walls personally. He didn't rely on other people's reports, just what he read, he finds out firsthand about the problems. His general plans are then shaped into specific actions. And then after the tour, Nehemiah offers a solution. Uh, in this verse that we read, to, this translation that we read today, it says, uh, let us start rebuilding uh, the response there. It says to the verse 17, let us build the wall of Jerusalem and how he senses God's calling to, uh, on him to that project. And the people respond, let us start rebuilding. Other translations say, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. Now, as a parenthesis or parenthetical, about the only time I've ever heard that verse, let us rise up and build, if you've been a part of a church, is in the context of a financial stewardship campaign to build a church building. That's literally about the only time I've ever heard it. And that's completely out of context. Because this verse and this passage is not about building a church, but about building a city. And I would love to see a church stewardship campaign called Rise Up and Build to raise funds for the restoration of the city. To rise up and build to alleviate the trouble and shame of poverty right here in this city. 
to rise up and build to repair the trouble and shame of that education gap, to rise up and build by helping families on the verge of breaking up and affecting their children for an entire generation to helping them stay together, to rise up and build by helping men and women experiencing the trouble and the shame of incarceration by visiting them in their distress, right? and helping re-enter society and find community. To rise up and build by tearing down some walls, the walls of division between people, an ethnic and political and social division, and for the church to actually be a showcase like you are, that we can actually, in fact, live together and love together. That's a powerful message in this city. Well, what did their rise up and build campaign look like? Well, they didn't just sit around and criticize the project, right, like their enemies did. They didn't just post criticism on Facebook. They didn't outsource a work crew and says, let's get somebody else to work on this project, right? And they would just approach the job as mere employment. But instead, in chapter 3, you can read it later, they repaired the wall, and this is important, near the, in the section where they lived, the section that they cared most about, that would be strong, that they would be most passionate about fixing. They had a vested interest in seeing a strong wall there, right? So if there was going to be any enemies coming in, at least their section of the wall was strong, right? And if everybody had that same approach, let's make our section of the wall, the section that we know most about and care most about strong, then the entire city would flourish. Families worked together, neighbors with neighbors, and they working together, they accomplished something remarkable in only 52 days a serviceable wall was rebuilt just in 52 days. That's a great example in the Old Testament of this communal service, community organization, right? Nehemiah was a community organizer. Formed by relationships and shared concerns, directly working out of the point of their greatest impact where the strong wall made a difference. It's actually similar to James Davidson Hunter's conclusion in To Change the World. He's a professor of religion and culture and social theory at University of Virginia, and Hunter questions that why despite all the passion, why all the talk, why all the money, and the sheer numbers of Christians in this country, that we've had so little impact. And he says this, the main reason why Christian believers today from various communities have not had the influence in the culture to which they have aspired is not that they don't believe enough, or try hard enough, or care enough, or think Christianly enough, or have the right worldview, but rather because they have been absent from the arenas in which the greatest influence in the culture is exerted. Or in Nehemiah's story, they weren't on the wall. They weren't on the wall. And Hunter's paradigm is one of faithful presence, and for Christians to be salt and light right in the middle of their cultural influences, as he says, with a priority to what is right in front of us, the community, the neighborhoods, and the city, and the people in them. Hunter's book reminded me of Nehemiah, and it reminds me a lot of you and this church, a faithful presence in the court of the king and in the court of the people right here. Let me encourage you that working in D.C. provides our churches with a remarkable opportunity that I think is almost unprecedented in any other city. 
in air, to serve in areas of incredible influence, to be present, right, in, the, in those places. But what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be faithfully present for the gospel to shape how we see our job? For example, I was talking with a foreign service officer uh, with the State Department, and he's a Christian, and so I asked him how his faith affected how he approached his job, how he saw it, how he approached it. And his answer was this, I don't gossip. I don't gossip. He said a lot of people in the State Department gossip, and he wanted to be a faithful witness. Now, that's good and true, but that's good and true for any Christian in any job, right? In any city. What I wanted to know was, as a foreign service officer, how did that affect him? How did the gospel shape his work? In other words, did he see other cultures differently, knowing that we're all equally valued in Christ? Did it affect his thinking about the place of religious faith in international affairs? Did it shape his concern for aliens and strangers, for refugees and immigrants? Did it embolden him to advocate for global justice and not just national advantage? How does the gospel shape his work? Because it has to shape it more than simply not gossiping, and that's a good and true thing, but it better affect the rest of his life as well. Well, what about you? What about your work? How does your Christian faith, how does the, the, the certainty and the, the conviction of the gospel on your life, how does that shape you and how you approach the city? Now, if you're an idealist, the gospel challenges you because you're prone to idolize your work, to invest all of your hopes and your dreams in your job to change the world. And the Bible says that work is still noble even after the fall, but it is under the curse and the gospel says, don't make work your idol. Don't invest all your time and energy and your dreams and hopes into your job. Don't make it a substitute savior. But if you're a pragmatist, the gospel also challenges you, right? Because you're prone not to idolize your work, you're prone to demonize it. To see the work is simply a means to put bread on the table, and the gospel says it's a lot more than that. That God created work for his image bearers to reflect God's character and his purpose. So how are you working unto the Lord in your job, in your studies, inside or outside of the home? I want to encourage you to approach your job as Nehemiah did. As God's workman in a city under repair. That God has sovereignly put you in this time and this place where you can work on a section of the wall. As God says to his people in Jeremiah 29, to seek the welfare, literally the shalom, the wholeness of the city where I have sent you. And I believe God has sent you at this time in this place to this city and your section of the wall. Well, the answers aren't easy, but the church should be a place where you're allowed to wrestle with that. And I know this church is where you can talk about how our faith shapes our vocations uh, to help work out what a faithful presence really looks like. There's some questions in the bulletin. I want to encourage you to, to wrestle with those questions about the intersection of faith and work. I want to encourage you to read Kingdom, Call, uh, Kingdom Calling by Amy Sherman, a friend of uh, Duke and, and mine. Uh, it's a great book on the, the, uh, the possibilities of vocation and faith. Now, if I just stop there, 
if I just talked about encouraging you to, to, uh, to, to, to be involved on the wall, so to speak, it would be just moralism. There was nothing particularly Christian about it. Just make the world a better place. That's good, but it's not the end. Why do you work for the shalom of the city? How do you honor God and how do you align with the arc of history? I want to end with the, the third vignette, a city that lasts. This is a picture from the article in The Guardian, uh, the cover picture that's, uh, that, with the title, The Resurrection of Palermo. And you get a hint of this in verse 20 where Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And Nehemiah knows that our talents and our vocations come from God himself who enables us to prosper. So he is the one who gave you the abilities that you have, the smarts that you have, the opportunities that you have. All those things come from God. And Nehemiah delights in his dependence upon God who is at work in and through his people then and now. And therefore, in God's strength and for his honor, he says, we, his servants, will arise and build. And those who oppose that, those who trust in their own strength, they have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem, the city of Shalom. They aren't working together for the glory of God. They're working for their own glory. But the corollary is this. If you are about the shalom of God, if you are about his purposes and the wholeness of, of the city, if you work in his strength, you have a portion, a right, and a claim there. You're a citizen of Jerusalem. Now, that's the story. But there's a meta story, a deeper meta narrative that the story points to, that God is in the business of restoring the world as he intends it to be, and he hasn't given up on it. He intends this place to be a place of shalom. And you read about that in Revelation, the Apostle John's vision of the end of all things in chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And the end of history is a city, the marriage of heaven and earth. Physicality, physicality and materiality, the heaven and earth will be one. And St. Augustine said years ago that we are citizens of either the, citizen, the city of man or the city of God. And the earthly city glorifies or glories in itself, and the heavenly city glories in the Lord. Let me ask you, where's your glory? Is it in yourself or is it in the Lord? And those are your two options. And on your own, you cannot earn a claim in the city of God. But here's the good news. That Jesus Christ has secured your portion and your right and your claim there for you entirely. He has lived the perfect life for you. He's died for your sin and shame on the cross. And he's raised you to new life in him. And now, as a follower of Christ, you are a citizen, not of Jerusalem, but of the new Jerusalem. The true and better city that the physical city of Jerusalem points to. And Hebrew 11 tells us what that is. It says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And to see that city, our inevitable city, the future, uh, the city that we look to, it requires faith. Which Hebrews 11 says is the conviction of things not seen or 
invisible, right? The new Jerusalem, the invisible city, the true and the better city that Jerusalem points to. Hebrews says uh, so that Abraham looks to the new Jerusalem, that invisible city, that God has given us a portion and a right and a claim there. In the book Invisible Cities by Italo Cabino, the Khan uh, has to decide whether to believe Marco Polo's fanciful descriptions. Uh, there's a city called Armilla, which is an enchanting city of water pipes. The city of Octavia is a city of ropes and catwalks, like a spider web over a chasm. Or Chloe, which is a city of complete strangers where no one knows anyone. And the con says, there is still one of which you never speak. Marco Polo bowed his head. Venice, the con said. Marco smiled. What else do you believe I've been talking to you about? The emperor did not turn a hair. And yet I've never heard you mention that name. And Polo said, every time I describe a city, I am saying something about Venice. You see, Polo is not describing vignettes of 55 cities, but 55 vignettes of one city, Venice. The water pipes of Armilla are the canals of Venice, and the catwalks of Octavia are the bridges of Venice, and the strangers in Chloe are the loneliness that one can feel in any large city like Venice. And for Polo, who loves his home city, the great city of Venice is like a window to all cities, that the world is here. Its glories and its heartache, its best and its worst, they're all right here. And to see and to describe Venice, if only in your mind's eye, is to see and to describe the world. And the wonders of these cities resonate because the answer they give to something real, the home he loves, Venice. And I think Italo Cavino's book there is a good picture of what it means to live by faith. That everything you do here, everything you do now in faith, says something about the new Jerusalem. Right? You are describing the new Jerusalem in your work. The new Jerusalem that answers a question that you have of who are we and where are we going? Why are we here? How you approach the city and your work is like a vignette. It's like a description of one part of a city that others can't see, a description of our true home. And so when you work for justice in your job or in your volunteer work, you're describing the true city of justice, the New Jerusalem. When you work for community, you're describing the true city of community. When you work for beauty, you're describing the true and better city of beauty. However you help bring shalom to this city, you're describing the new Jerusalem, the city of shalom. Now, caveat. The reality is that at times your work on the wall will seem for naught. Your job will end in frustration. The project that you invested your heart and soul in will be defunded. Your good intentions will be ignored or you'll fail. 
your work will not seem to last. And that was the case for Nehemiah. They built the wall in 52 days and they made the city safe and secure, but that didn't keep the Romans out. 400 years later, they conquered Jerusalem. And then years after that, decades after that, after a Jewish revolt against their Roman occupiers, Rome destroyed the walls, the temple, and the city in 70 AD. Nehemiah's work didn't last. The city lay in ruins. And you'll feel that way about your job and your work sometimes. But here's the good news. What you do for Christ will last. It will last. Revelation 21 goes on to say, the kings of the earth will bring into new Jerusalem the glory and the honor of the nations. And what I think that means is that the best things of this life, what is done in faith for Christ, will somehow be brought over to the next. They will last. That your faithful presence here right now are the bricks and the mortars of the city of God. And because of Jesus, because of what he has done for you that you could not do for yourself, you get to enjoy that forever. And that brings a dignity and a purpose to work that no book, no amount of energy, no amount of, of, of education can possibly do. That you know that your work has purpose and life and meaning and, uh, and eternity to it. Because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone, you have a portion and a right and a claim in the new Jerusalem. Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of work. We thank you that we are just not to be idle people, but that we are people to, to have work and to have meaning and purpose, uh, to be about the work of restoration and reconciliation, working for community and justice and shalom and wholeness. And Father, I'd pray, just as Duke prayed earlier, for every person in this room, that they would approach this week just a little bit differently. That they would, they would feel like they're a workman on the wall of the new Jerusalem. That what they do in faith for you and not for their own glory is helping to build not the city of man, but the city of God. And they will enjoy their work that is done for you forever. Amen.